This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. This is the What School Could Be podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. Before we start the show, please consider joining the What School Could Be global online community. Simply install the What School Could Be app on your mobile device or go to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. I look forward to seeing you there. Dearest Emma, we are so grateful for the warmth and grace you share so seemingly effortlessly. What a gorgeous community you are shepherding. We are all so lucky. It brightens all of our lives to be part of such a dynamic, attuned, and aware school. Thank you, and wishing you a wonderful holiday season. My guest today is Emma Rapoon, and that was a lovely note written to Emma by one of her kiddos' parents. Emma is my daughter and an incredible educator. And if I were a principal or head of school or college president, I would hire her in a heartbeat to fill any position at any level. One of Emma's colleagues in a letter of rec wrote the following, and I quote, she goes above and beyond supporting the social and emotional development of her students while also facilitating friendship circles and problem solving techniques with a positive discipline approach, unquote. Emma was raised between the hills of Marin County, California, and the Ko'olau Mountains of Oahu in Hawaii. In college, she studied sociology at UC Santa Barbara, where she received the first inkling that teaching would be her life's work. In the following years, she was trained in the ways of forest school and nature connection by her mentors at Vilda and Earthwise Education, and became a wilderness first responder through the National Outdoor Leadership School, or Knowles. During that time, she discovered a deep love for working with early childhood age children and decided to pursue a graduate degree in education through the Bay Area Teacher Training Institute, which she completed in 2021. A few years ago, after getting her BA in sociology at UCSB, As she was applying to grad school and grappling with an early version of her educator's credo, she wrote the following, and I quote, When my students are intrinsically motivated, they thrive in their learning and our community benefits. When I give authentic encouragement and acknowledgement and facilitate honest reflection, my students build healthy self-esteem. When my students are able to be in their natural intelligences, our learning community thrives. I acknowledge my white privilege, and I intend for a culturally responsive, caring classroom. All are welcome in my classroom, especially the parts of my students that are hurting. I take care of myself so I can be the kind of teacher worth imitating. With my presence and intention, I create an atmosphere of acceptance, care, and encouragement." Recently, Emma updated her philosophy of education, which reads as follows, and I quote, "...to safeguard and support children's right to a childhood defined by unhurried awe and wonder, 
abundant, embodied, direct experiences, and consistent loving care from the adults around them to create and hold safe space for exploration, growth, and connection, to be present, to be kind, to lead with my heart, and work each day to be worthy of imitation." End quote. In my biased but educated opinion, that is a philosophy of education that should make all of our hearts happy and give us hope for the future and the future of our children. When she's not tending to children, Emma can be found gathering spring water near Stinson Beach, exploring the forests near Mill Valley, going for walks with her partner Jaden and Dog River, hanging with their cats Snoodles, Dogen, and Roshi, and singing her favorite mamoose tune. She is a child of the ocean and a free spirit who brings joy to all humans and animals around her. And now, here's my conversation with Emma Rapoon, otherwise known as My Little Fish. Emma Rapoon, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. Hey, Pop. <laughs> you know, I knew that was coming, <laughs> and it's going to make me laugh every single time. I know. Listeners, this is going to be a very unique episode. You already heard from the intro that she's my daughter, so just here we go, all right? This is the 101st. It's my choice because I'm the host and the producer, so I've been looking forward to this for a long time. And it's true, Em. I was just thinking this morning when I got up how how cool it is because obviously I've been on this journey with you since the moment you arrived in the world. And here we are at this marker point, right? At the 101st and you're my guest. You know, how cool is that, right? It's the best. I feel like this has been a long time coming. (laughs) I was thinking about that too, all those long walks around the Alawai when I was a kid and here we are on a podcast. Yep. Here we are. All right. So Emma, if I were forced to describe you in a few words, which would be hard, frankly, I would say that you are a child of the ocean. So it's hard to list all the ways your life has intersected with water from being on the Marinwood Orca swim team to time with me in Hawaii, swimming off the Napali coast to scuba dives in the kelp forests of Southern California to swimming in the Yuba River and so much more. So what is the meaning of water in your life, Emma Rapoon? And why is it important for folks to know your relationship to it? I'll start by saying, I don't know that I can say exactly why or what the precise meaning of me and water, except to say that my sun sign in Ayurvedic astrology is a water sign. Mm. But what I can say, thinking about this question, is that my relationship to water throughout my life reflects my journey, my transformational journey as a human being. Mm. And... Looking at the beginning of my journey in life, there's so much light, there's so much beauty, such a beautiful childhood. And also looking at my relationship with water, there was a lot of fear Mm. and a lot of anxiety. And I think the image that comes to mind is actually moments with you Mm -hmm. where I was so deeply afraid of that deep, dark ocean water where I couldn't see to the bottom. And I imagine that was pretty hard to hold space for. You were ready for your swim. I was terrified. Mm. And the thing I love that's making me smile in this moment is remembering that there was a surfboard. Mm, Yes. And that that (laughs) intervention, that 
adjustment, that honoring of where I was at in my life, Mm. getting to paddle on a surfboard next to you is really a defining feature of my journey from a place largely defined by fear in my life to a place now where I really identify with trust and acceptance of the unknown as a human being. That's something that's deeply a part of who I am now. Mm. But looking back, my relationship with water really reflects my transformational journey as a human. So I starting in that place of fear of the unknown, not being able to see the bottom. That was the thing that got me mm. because there's plenty of moments, you know, leaping off the diving board in Iowa city, getting kicked out of the pool <laughs> Whoa, because yes. I was two years old or whatever, uh-huh. you know, beautiful moments in water, but that there was this defining aspect of my relationship to water where I was really deeply afraid. Mm. And I see that reflected in my social development and my relationship to peers and my relationship and comfort level and social spaces. And I see that my relationship with water over time, like now I'm, I'm so much more willing in my personal life, in myself as an adult, interacting with the world to jump into the unknown. And I see that in water, in my relationship with water. I'm Mm -hmm. so much more comfortable diving into those waters where I can't see the bottom. I feel so much safer and more at ease in those spaces. Mm -hmm. And so I just love that this question, you know, could so easily be, I don't know, a bit more surface, but for me, it's actually a pretty deep, Mm -hmm. a deep reflection of my life journey as a person in general. And I thank you for that question because it's really sweet Mm. to reflect that and see that mirror, that parallel, Mm. parallel feature, natural feature, natural element that really evokes a lot for me and represents a lot of who I am. Mm. You know, we we could spend a a whole episode just talking about all of our experiences with water, including the moment where we both got kicked out of the Iowa City pool because you went off the high board at two years old and scared the heck out of the lifeguards. But you were already out of the water. You'd swum over to the side and gotten out of the water before they'd even reacted. And I think that's why we got booted, because they were sort of embarrassed (laughs) by that. But in truth, I hear you. And I think what's so awesome for me is that you also understand that in all the kids that you work with in your teacher life. And you understand that they also have an ocean, even if it's metaphorical, it's that deep, dark thing underneath. And you get that. And I I think that's really cool. And we'll talk about that more a little bit later in this conversation about your philosophy of education. But I think that that's really neat the way that you express that. And so kind of along the same lines, your life so far has been rich with travel experiences. And I believe that travel might be one of the most important ways a teacher's philosophy of education deepens and becomes richer and nuanced. And I want to ask about three of your travel experiences separately so that we can do some comparing and contrasting. So when you were in your early teens, I think, you and your mom made a trip to Africa. And you were not just tourists. You were doing some church-related service projects, I recall. But that trip must have opened your eyes to some unique and interesting ways of seeing the world. And I wonder what elements of that experience have stayed with you as you continue to travel on your life's journey. Yeah, so thinking back to Ghana, yeah, that was a powerful experience 
in many ways, and like you already named, part of that was that I wasn't there as a tourist. Tourism and visiting places, you know, for the beauty and the adventure of it is an amazing thing to do. And this was a very formative trip for me because I was quite young. I think I was a freshman in high school. And it was oriented around service and it was oriented around being welcomed into our host family and host community, church communities space. And that in that welcoming and in that global bridge that we were building there, our Mm. experience was immediately familial. It was immediately relational. It wasn't observational. It wasn't judgment-based. It wasn't, we weren't outsiders. We were being welcomed right in. And I would say experiencing that level of community connection in such a far-flung place from California and even Hawaii, where I was being bicoastally raised, Mm -hmm. was really impactful, especially as a young person, a teen, surrounded by, you know, unfortunately, teen culture, even back then and these days, maybe isn't always the healthiest, no matter how much parents strive. Developmentally, we're quite self-centered. And... That trip really opened my eyes to what it's like to connect on a grander community level and to Mm. be brought into the fold of something, invited to dance, invited to eat, invited to, you know, visit the cloth maker who made us these beautiful outfits to sit with those women and to talk with them. Mm. It wasn't even sort of your, your average, gosh, not to speak ill of any type of program that gets people out in the world visiting each other, but it, it wasn't even that kind of program that's a little more gimmicky mm. where you're, you know, being brought to the cooking class and put in a funny outfit. And it was really real. It was mm. a real community connection moment where we were really being invited in to sit, to talk, to dance, to listen, to be present and to absorb what was being offered. And it wasn't a gimmick. It wasn't a show. We weren't being shuttled around. It was simply like, Hey, come on in, Mm. come sit with us. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a friend, his name is Steve Shapiro and he has a podcast called Experience Matters. And what you're describing here is exactly what his podcast is all about. Experience matters. And you carry that with you over the course of your life and it becomes a part of the fabric of your life. And so conversely, During your last year at UC Santa Barbara, you went on the 50th anniversary voyage of Semester at Sea, which started in Russia, I recall, went all the way to South Africa, then across to Argentina, and then ended in Cuba, and then finally in Miami. So again, big question, but in what ways did that Semester at Sea change you and open your head and heart to a world outside of California? Gosh, it's funny that you ask about this because... I happen to have this recurring dream. It's kind of the only recurring dream that I have. It's sort of, you know, that's the thing humans do. They have recurring dreams. And my only recurring dream as an adult is about semester at sea. (laughs) And every time I'm going again, I'm (laughs) ill-prepared. Nobody knows that I'm going. I don't have what I need. (laughs) And I'm going on this four-month voyage on a ship. So I'm just smiling because I had that dream you know, just last week, mm. semester at was incredibly powerful. And it brings me back to your first question, because that was still a time in my life where I was experiencing a lot of fear mm. and a lot of social anxiety, a lot of hesitancy to be really wide open to the world. Mm. And semester at sea happened directly after a really big rupture in my life that was very, very painful. And so I think 
that really blasted me open. And then I was blessed by you and by my other incredibly supportive parents who sent me on this journey. And it was really an incredible place to land Mm. coming from such a heartbroken place. Mm. And it really met me where I was at. And it, you know, it was on the ocean. I was on the ocean for four months living (laughs) on a ship. You know, looking at that symbolism is pretty wild for me. Yeah. Working with my fears, you know, a new port every week. It was challenging. It was really hard because for me, home, comforts, security, relationships, all of that is a big part of, and at that time in particular, was a big part of how I created stability in my life. And so I was exceptionally challenged by this style. I didn't go somewhere and get to drop in and get to know a community and kind of find my rhythm. It was always changing. Mm -hmm. And yet there was this constant of our home on the sea, Mm -hmm. which I'm just marveling at. Yeah. So there was that social piece for me, that emotional, like deeply personal piece that I recall. And I think maybe even as part of why I have that recurring dream, Yeah. because it was, it was a really big thing that I did inside of myself to be that brave. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, it was such an incredible gift to get to sample, I suppose, because often the trips were so short into each country because we did so many. I think it was 13 in four months. But to get to drop into those worlds, it was, yeah, I just keep saying the word dream. It was a dream. It Mm. was so, it was such a marvelous, eye-opening, heart-opening, expansive, healing journey for me that Mm. I look back on with so much gratitude. It's foundational, which is obviously why I'm still dreaming about it. Mm. And I also remember that during that process, whenever you and I had a chance to talk to each other during the journey, that we would geek out on the actual program itself, you know? I mean, the actual learning, the classes that you were taking and how they were connected to those journeys, those port calls when you would come in and you would go off on these expeditions and all of that. So that's really cool. And of course, That leads to after college, you spent time in Greece on the island of Lesbos working for an agency that cared for refugees fleeing the Syrian civil wars. In fact, you were the volunteer coordinator for folks working with youth refugees. So I wonder, Em, in what ways your time in this program shaped you and what would eventually become your philosophy of education? My time in Greece was like a whole different flavor of impact, of potent experience. And that was brought on by my mom's wanting to spend our vacation time as a family volunteering. They were feeling Mm -hmm. extremely motivated to get out there and do something meaningful with our time, our incredible privilege to get to travel together as a family. And so that's where I landed with them because of them. And ultimately made the decision to stay while there for an extra month. That wasn't the plan. So I didn't go there with this altruistic mission to Mm. become the volunteer coordinator. I totally stumbled into it. We got there. We had the experience of receiving refugees on the beaches 
of Lesbos and I couldn't leave. I had the summer open and I just had to stay. And so I made that choice to stay and the universe really took me on that journey. I surrendered. I said, okay, I'm staying. I waved goodbye to them. And then I just let myself unfold into that experience and eventually found myself simply by way of being the person who had the interest in coordinating this youth camp that was on the island. And I actually ended up writing to my community back home and creating a GoFundMe and raising quite a bit of money to Mm -hmm. get those kids more of what they needed. And the thing that's coming to mind in this moment, it's just what's bubbling up. So I want to share it. I remember sitting with them and talking with them. And it was it was an all-boys camp, actually, which mm. is notable mm-hmm. when I think back on that. It was an edgy, challenging, again, challenging experience and really, really rewarding. And I remember sitting with them and talking with them and hearing about their experience. Here they are on this foreign island so far from home, having had to do this incredibly hard, heartbreaking thing. And they're all there together from many different countries. And I remember finding out by way of some conversation that the kind of soap that was being provided to them was just so far from what they were used to smelling at home and it was they just didn't like it. Mm. And that there was this soap. I don't know how I found this out, but somehow I found this out. I sleuthed it out and I found out that there was a type of soap being sold in a local market that Mm. smelled like their soap from home. And so part of that money that we raised was to buy bars of soap that reminded them of home. Wow. And it was those little moments. It was such a big, broad experience and you know that tagline on my resume or when I talk about having been the volunteer coordinator you know I really when I think back it's those tiny moments of connection of Mm. offering people who are in a really desperate situation even a shred of home or of comfort or of that familiar energy there are many moments like that and other opportunities it's those things that really come to mind Mm. it was an incredibly humbling experience. Mm. So M, that's actually a perfect segue to this next question, which is sort of a continuation of what you were talking about, but maybe a slight shift in direction. So in the side margin of your resume, you listed what you called your top relevant skills, which are communication, organization, relationship building, presence, patience, problem solving, authenticity, and heartfulness. So we only have time to talk about one of these. So which one is the most meaningful to you, the one you relish the most as a relevant skill, the one you feel the strongest connection to, the one skill that is the most mature and grown in your mind thus far? Such a beautiful question. Thank you for asking about that list. It was sort of funny to come up with it when I was working on that resume because in many ways, the second half feels more like the quote soft skills yeah. that's now becoming yeah. more accepted, more widely celebrated in the education realm, but still I think at times remains limited to a space that we don't value quite as much as those first couple skills. So it was a process for me to put those on my resume and to just mm stand true in those and feel proud to have those things on my resume, to have those qualities and skills. So I love that you're asking about it Mm -hmm. and allowing me to shed some light on those things. And I'd have to choose the relationship building skill, Mm -hmm. which presence largely falls under. And the reason that I cherish it so much is because in my journey of becoming a teacher, 
diving into education in many different arenas, relationship building has been the resounding takeaway from all of those experiences that that's what really matters. Yeah. And that that's what we as human beings are designed to do. And it's how we've survived and it's how we've evolved and it's how we thrive is through our webs of relational connection in this world. And as a teacher, as much as I'm sort of moving away from identifying with that word as a guide, as a facilitator, as a coach, I'll just put it aside, which is that every once in a while, a small child ages four, five, and six will forget to call me teacher Emma, which is a (laughs) phrase that we use in the nature connection world. And they'll just shout out, Hey coach. Oh, and it always just gets me so deep. It feels so good. Mm, mm-hmm. So as a coach, as a person entrusted to supporting young children in their development and in their learning, it has been profound for me to realize that my relationship with them is the thing mm. that largely allows them to learn because it creates safety. Yeah, And that relationship building with children Again, kind of weaving in all the different words, not to be that person that doesn't just answer the question, (laughs) Mm. but weaving in authenticity, weaving in presence, weaving in heartfulness, that all is in service of relationship building. Those are the qualities of a teacher that really allow children to learn, to unfold, to feel safe, and to embody their most vibrant, alive version of themselves because they're not caught up in managing all the hard-to-have feelings that inhibit their learning. Mm. And I found such deep joy in my work in realizing this because it allows me to put forward and prioritize first and foremost my relationship with my students. Mm. Mm-hmm. And as we build those relationships through authenticity, through heartful connection, through my deep presence the learning and the experiences and the connections and the adventures and, and everything that unfolds from there feels like this bonus Mm. because we're so deeply connected and solid in that center place of the relational field. And again, it's something that I think maybe gets missed in the hustle and the bustle in the metrics of success that are largely geared towards left brain, analytical, passing the test, you know, progressing through the math curriculum, et cetera, that we all know about and as educators shake our fist at all the time. So I love being able to bring that forward in my work and to be able to talk to other educators about it and to wear that with so much pride in myself, not that I do it perfectly, but that I am somebody who identifies as a champion of relationship building and that that really is important, Mm. essential, absolutely essential. Mm. And so that's a Perfect segue to this last question, which closes out the first part of our conversation before we go to our first break. So you used the following quote from the master navigator, Nainoa Thompson, as the preamble to an application essay you wrote in 2018. And I'm going to quote Nainoa here, which this is the quote at the top of this application letter or essay, if you will. Quote, wayfinding is the traditional way of navigating using all the natural sciences 
to guide the canoe. And that would be in the heavens, the stars and the moon at night, the sun and the moon during the day, as well as the ocean waves. The system incorporated reading the signs of the clouds and also the animals, especially the seabirds, to determine where land is. It was an ingenious system that required tremendous observation of the elements of nature to make a successful landfall, unquote. So why did you lead this application essay with this master navigator's musings on wayfinding? And what is the connection between wayfinding and your approach to teaching and learning? It's so sweet to reflect back on that essay Mm. and that quote. And I love that quote from Nainoa because it's an attempt to define wayfinding, which is a technical and navigational skill. But again, it's like a left brain, right brain thing. Traditional Hawaiian wayfinding is not simply the scientific method of exactly how you navigationally find yourself from point A to point B. It's woven in with the heavens and the seabirds and the signs and nature. And it is inherently spiritual, Mm -hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. And that for me in my journey in life, that pairing of what is the actual process of moving through life and the decisions we make and the choices and the way we find ourselves, the wayfinding of our journey is inherently woven together with what is the essence of our spirit and our hearts and our journey. Mm. And so for me in that particular essay particular reaching out into the world and saying hey this is me you know will you accept me into your program it felt so right to illuminate that part of myself that i see the world through that multifold lens of both mm. the technical and the spiritual the mm. objective what you know what is true about my path and then what is true about my path if you will mm-hmm. those dual truths so each and every day we take a journey and we take a journey over weeks. We take a journey over months and over the course of a year long journey and sometimes even multi year journeys with children. And my approach to teaching and seeing each day as a journey and seeing the unfolding arc of our time together as a journey is really, again, rooted in that commitment to seeing what is true and also seeing what is unseen and true, what is underneath the truth. Mm. So we show up together, we have gear, we have you know learning materials, we have a lesson plan, we have a goal, we have you know something we would like to have happen that day. We have all these objectives. Yeah. And my teaching philosophy these days, through the evolution of my life and all the incredible gifts I've been given of perspective, is really about showing up prepared with all that gear, with all the goals, et cetera, like I'm naming that sort of left brain side of things. And then staying really open to what wants to unfold and uh, staying really aware and staying really receptive to what wants to unfold. And to me, that's wayfinding. You set, you know, you set a goal, you chart your course, you have all your skills, you're very prepared But then when you take off and you take the journey, you have to be willing to receive what comes your way and work with it and flow with it and, you know, deviate here and course correct there and follow the signs that you couldn't have possibly predicted because 
they're unknown until you arrive upon yeah. them. And if you arrive with rigidity and a refusal to accept them because they're not a part of your lesson plan or your wayfinding, you know, your navigational course that you had thought would unfold, you end up in this sticky place where you're not letting life flow through you. And on the flip side, when you receive those moments, when you come into those moments and you're flexible and you're adaptable and you're curious and you go with it, I have chills right now in my body. Magic happens. Mm. And I've seen it time and time again with children. I've tracked my own inner rigidity, my own fixation on what it was that I was bringing that day or what I thought we would do. And I compare them to days when I'm more flexible and adaptable. Even just yesterday, I could share a vignette if we have time. Mm -hmm. We do. I showed up to my day with my kids, Lake Lagunitas, absolutely gorgeous site here in Marin County that I am incredibly fortunate to teach at on Thursdays with a homeschool group of four to six-year-olds. And I had my plan for the day. I knew what we were going to do. I had a whole flow charted out. And then as our day was unfolding, one of my students found this stick, beautiful redwood stick. He loved it. He instantly loved it. And he said, teacher Emma, do you have those potato peelers? Because when we're teaching kids how to carve, often we start with potato peelers just to get the technique down of carving away from ourselves in a very safe way. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh yeah, I do have those. But we were kind of far away from my car, which is where I had some of that extra gear stored, including the potato peelers. But in my backpack, I had, I just happened to have, I'd been carrying around for weeks, this really cool Mora knife, which is for young children. And I had just popped it in my backpack. We got these new knives at the organization I work at that are really safe for young kids. And I hadn't used it. It had been in my backpack for weeks. And I said, I have this really cool knife. Do you want to start to learn how to carve? And he lit up. And by the end of the day, mm. he had learned all the rules. He had practiced so safely, so beautifully, and with so much reverence and persistence and devotion. Mm. And by the end of the day, he had carved this entire stick and we had attached foliage to the bottom and he had himself a Harry Potter broomstick. And he was <laughs> over the moon oh and he my. was so proud to show his mom and she was so proud of him and so excited and supportive of him. Mm. And I look back on that moment and I think, gosh, if I had been more rigid, if I had been less in the wayfinding mindset, and been more attached to what we were doing, I might have actually said like, oh, no, I don't have those. No, that's not what we're doing today. And this beautiful moment of learning and incredible direct experience would not have unfolded. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that's just a good example of wayfinding where here we are on our journey of the day, charting our course. And instead of staying you know, wedded to what I had planned, we flexed and this really beautiful moment of learning unfolded. Mm -hmm. You know, my treasured friend and a previous podcast guest, Aaron Shorn, talks about teaching as improvisational jazz. And in, you know, you have, as you described, you have your plan, you have your goals, you have all of your implements together. But once you start, the improvisation starts. And I, I love the way that you wove that together. And that's just, to me, it's also, you know, kind of a perfect example of how you build, you know, you talked about building relationships, right? That magic moment that you just described that ultimately resulted in the Harry Potter broomstick that he was going to ride comes as a result of the relationship that you were building with him. And that moment made it even deeper as well. So that's a, that's a great story. So, Hey everyone, we'll be right back with more questions for Emma Rapoon. 
Hi, fellow educators. I'm Steve Shapiro, and like you, I'm excited about the possibilities of what school could be. Please check out my podcast, Experience Matters, where I talk to guests ranging from big national thinkers like Daniel Pink and Tony Wagner to recent high school graduates about the most profound learning experiences of their youth. Then we dig into the implications for how we can reshape schools to produce powerful breakthrough learning for all of our students. Education can take many forms, but whatever form it takes, experience matters. Hey there. Are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, friends. This is Toy Hirschman from EntreEd. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be. As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the EntreEd Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Hey everyone, we are back with Emma Rapun, the Director of Early Childhood Programs and a lead teacher at Vilda in Marin County, California. So Emma, I wondered to you in advance of today if you had any big meta questions on your mind. You do. And they are, and I quote, how can teachers help our children, quote, return to the village? How can they become the aunties and uncles that our westernized culture has attempted to cut out of the picture? How can teachers be supported to do their own healing work, to repair the ancestral trauma that has gone unhealed for generations in order to show up fully for their students and support the work of breaking trauma cycles in the EDU spaces they define with their presence? So there's a lot to unpack here, but let's just take this in two parts. So part one is, What is your thinking about aunties and uncles and other extended family members being cut out of our Western education paradigm? And how can teachers help our children return to the village? So this really big wonder comes from both my direct lived experience in various education settings over the last 10 years, and also my own personal passion and interest in our human species and how we've gotten where we are today. So what I've noticed is that teachers don't necessarily see themselves as aunties and uncles. And this, again, comes back to the question of relationship building. Are we there to monitor and to track and to bring along and sort of to relate more objectively and from a more outsider perspective that we're giving these children to work with and to shape? Or are we there to walk alongside them? Mm. Are we there to be their companion? Are we there to say, hey, I see you. You're not alone. I'm here with you. I believe you. I'm with you. And in the spaces that I've seen that happening and in the opportunities that I've had to work on that in my own practice, it is so powerful. And in grad school, we studied this thing called the effective filter. Mm. And it's all about how kids' learning happens when they feel safe and that there's actually these 
physiological markers and neuroscience that backs up this idea that when our affective filter is really high, meaning our cortisol levels, our stress levels, our insecurities, all of our worries, when that's all really high, we actually can't learn. Mm. And so what is the teacher's role in creating a safe space in the education setting? Like I said in my question that we define, Mm. what is our role in tracking our own inner landscape and doing our own inner healing work and showing up as that warm, relational, auntie or uncle presence, if you will, so that the education spaces that we define with our presence so that they're safe Mm. and so that kids can relax and they can, their nervous systems can actually relax and attune to our nervous systems that are ideally regulated. You know, we've, we're working through our stuff. We're in a centered grounded place as we hold that center point for kids and looking at the relational model as a way to access that. Mm -hmm. Because I think in some ways it can feel really daunting to show up in these spaces with kids to feel this weight that gosh, my presence defines this whole space But when we look at it from an auntie or an uncle perspective, nobody in a family system is perfect. Everybody's working with their stuff. But when we see ourselves as an auntie or an uncle or, you know, simply that extended family model, not to, you know, gender it Mm -hmm. as a family member in an appropriate way, if that's our energy signature, I'm here to walk beside you. I'm here to be your auntie. I'm here to support you that we automatically bring the tone of our classroom or of our school group to a place of safety and to a place of warmth and Mm. relationship, that that's our grounding point is relationship. Mm. So that's where my wonder comes from. How can we see ourselves in that way more? And of course, you know, it's funny, aunties, uncles, extended family, there can be a lot of struggle in family. And so I, I don't mean to dismiss that, but only in that, There is this sort of pure sense of the village that includes all the imperfection, but that we would lean into the relational space and that we would move away from that more siloed Mm. sort of industrialized factory model. And we would get back to the village where we came from as primal human beings, where everybody took care of everybody Mm. and that that is our primary role. Mm. I love that because in effect, you've actually described the really bizarre, goofy, weird thing that humans have done, most especially in our Western culture, of you know taking a very natural process of upbringing of children, which is it takes a village. Literally, it takes a village. And suddenly separating that when formal education begins and all of a sudden it's only one person who's sort of, in effect, raising you, at least during the hours of the school day. And I think that, you know, I said that there were two parts to this. I think it leads to the second part, which in effect you've almost kind of answered already, but you noted to me that you have sort of a shark tank pitch concept, which is therapy for teachers. In other words, you're kind of dealing with traumas in your life, which help you to understand your relationship building approach to your students. And I wonder if you can just briefly elaborate on that. Yeah. So in my formative years of stepping into the educational system and as a teacher, as an assistant teacher, I was blessed with the experience of witnessing some really dysregulated lead teachers. Mm. And I say that with so much care and reverence and in no way, you know, mean to call them out. Rather, what you're speaking to is my attempt to call us in, literally inward and into the fold of healing. Because what I witnessed in that space was 
an entire class that orbited around that very dysregulated teacher Mm. and that it affected and defined everything. Yeah. And so in the wonder of how to deal with this, quote, very challenging class, I was dismayed to find that nobody was looking to the teacher. Nobody was wondering what was going on with the teacher. There was a complete void of awareness or maybe it was just an unwillingness to put awareness there because it seems possibly really critical or judgmental or that's too personal or we sort of I've watched these educational systems dance this strange dance of avoidance and denial that the teacher defines the space with their energy Mm. and so if the teacher is extremely dysregulated if the teacher doesn't have the supports to move through whatever has happened in their life that's affecting them and impacting their inner landscape in that moment. Mm -hmm. We have these educational settings that are completely missing what's going on and also missing the opportunity to allow that teacher to heal. So I'll just add that personally for me, being a teacher has been extremely healing because I have had so many opportunities to be triggered, Mm -hmm. emotionally triggered because that's what children do. They do. (laughs) They reflect whatever is going on inside of them. This is neuroscience. This is developmental science. This is not even woo-woo and out there. This is truth. Yeah. They reflect and mimic and highlight whatever is going on in the ecosystem around them. And actually, one of my favorite quotes from graduate school, I can't remember it exactly verbatim right now, but it's essentially that kids sound the alarm with their dysregulation when the space is not safe, when there's something going on in the space. Yeah. So I have watched that in myself come up time and time again, and I've sat with it and I've done my own therapy work with it and I've healed with it. And I've been so blessed to be so shaken up by all the kids that I've been around over all the years. They are my teachers. Mm. And in my acceptance, you know, I've just been fortunate enough and blessed enough to have the framework to accept it, that I haven't rejected it. I've accepted it. I've accepted the hard to have feelings, the painful moments, the big questions, the, you know, coming home from the day, just so dysregulated myself because I was so challenged and so triggered all day and I've been able to work with it. And so that's why, you know, I was sort of laughing when I put that in the question, in your questionnaire, what's Mm -hmm. my shark tank idea? (laughs) My wish and my hope for the world is that somehow we would rally around the people who support our children and we would Mm. come up with creative ways to get them the mental and emotional support that they need. Mm. Absolutely not in a shameful way. Absolutely not in a judging way, in a celebratory way. Like you are that person who's socializing my child for all these hours a day. I really, really care about your inner emotional landscape. Mm. I care that you're regulated. I care that you're working through your childhood trauma. I care that you're working through what's hard for you through your shadows, because then I can trust that you can really be that central nervous system that my kid is attuning to six, eight, however many hours a day. Yeah. And so I wish that. I wish that for the world. It's something mm. that I live and breathe in my own practice and really value. And it's something that I hope to see unfolding more and more for teachers and mm. for all caregivers of young children. Mm. That's awesome. Beautiful.
So we've gotten to the point, we've come to the point now where I'd like to just briefly for a moment before we go to our second break, dive into the actual program that you're working with right now, which is called Vilda. So, um, the five themes that guide what school could be forward, the whole enterprise that falls under what school could be.org, they are mobilizing your community, student driven learning through real world challenges, assessments for deeper learning, and caring and connected communities. So, in what ways does the VILDA program writ large and VILDA Nature Garden, which you have directed, reflect these themes. So just briefly, take us on a tour of Vilda. I am proud to say that I think Vilda does all of these things really well. Awesome. And it's actually really cool to look at my organization through this framework. I don't think it's something I've exactly done before, although I've Mm. spent lots of time reflecting on what an incredible organization it is. Yeah, This is a really great way to look at it. And I love that What School Can Be has these defining features, lenses that we can look through to see what's going on in the world and kind of assess our own yeah. our own places. It's like a set of core beliefs that you move forward with, you know? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So Vilda has been around since 2008, grounded in Marin County. And we have certainly, though I haven't been with them since then, I still feel the we we have certainly mobilized the community. Yeah. It's a word that a lot of people know. I run into people at the grocery store. I'm wearing my Vilda hat and there's a story. There's a connection. Oh, my kid <laughs> did Vilda. I did Vilda. There's just all these amazing moments where I, you know, I see a kid across the street wearing a Vilda hoodie or I run into a student that was in my summer camp three years ago and we have a whole conversation and hear about how they're, Nature journey has unfolded since then, how they still proudly wear their Vilda t-shirt that they dyed, they tie-dyed with me. (laughs) Mm. So in a lot of ways, I see how Vilda has impacted this community. And of course, you know, Marin County is a relatively small place compared to this whole wide world. But I'm really proud of the way that it has managed to connect so many people in this area. And we now have programs that run in Sonoma and also up in Truckee. So it's exciting to see the expansion of this really beautiful community. Mm-hmm. We're also deeply connected to other nature schools across the country and across the world. Our director, Mia, is from Finland. And so she draws a lot of inspiration from that place and has many beautiful connections all over the world. She's written books. She's, you know, she's been all over the place, which is amazing. So that piece, I just really delight in the way that the community is all around me all the time. So Vilda in general and Nature Garden, the preschool program that I've been running since last year, are absolutely rooted in what we call direct experience. Mm. And I would liken that to the idea of real world challenges. So we are, our goal is to be in our bodies as much of the time, not so much in our heads, although our heads help us out a lot. You know, there's lots of cool nature facts and safety facts and all kinds of information, more cerebrally oriented Mm. information that's important for what we do, but that the majority of what we do is direct experience and real world challenges. So like the broomstick story, the carving story, you know, gosh, there's one million (laughs) stories that I could tell and I won't, I won't, but I'll just say that when you show up to Vilda as a teacher or as a student, or even as a parent, 
the essence of it is that we are here to be in our bodies and to meet the day with all of our tools and our emerging skill sets that we are embracing and learning through layered, thoughtful, direct experience so Mm -hmm. that when those moments arise, when there's a stream to cross or a mountain to climb or a bridge to build or an animal to track or, 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 et cetera, et cetera, Mm. all the things that we are orienting from that place of real world direct experience, meeting the challenge with our presence, with our bodies, that we're not spending too much time in that, you know, sort of problematic teacher talk, like overly teacher talking at students model Mm. that we really define ourselves as being in the opposite category, which is, you know, embodying our experience and really Mm. meeting the learners where they're at and getting on their level and being there with them. And then of course, artfully weaving in that knowledge that really supports us in having such a juicy and rich experience. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so before we go to our second break, I'm going to allow myself to editorialize here for a second, meaning that because you have privileged me, um, in this sense of allowing me to be a part of your experience day in and day out through your text messages, the photos, through everything that you have done to include me in this process of growing into Vilda. There's two things that I want to observe in this moment. One is that what really blows me away about the program and about the work that you're doing in particular is that you're actually growing and nurturing and watering natural scientists from a very young age. And you're totally tapping into their natural curiosity, but you're shaping it in such a way that they're actually becoming natural scientists who have that incredible wayfinding kind of awareness that navigational kind of awareness. So that's one thought. And the second thought is that it's been very special for me to be included in the process of you building a caring and connected community through your communication to your parents, through the newsletter in particular that you write or have written in the past. And that newsletter to me became, you know, the weekly newsletter became the highlight of my week because you showed me the ways that you were actually building a village. In effect, you were bringing all of the elements of the extended family into the process through the sharing of what the students were doing through that newsletter. And that, to me, is the very essence of what building a caring and connected community is all about, and also mobilizing that community, because clearly the way that your parents reacted to that newsletter represented that they were mobilizing around what you were doing. So those two thoughts, you know, building and creating and training and educating and growing and nurturing natural scientists and the way that you mobilized your community, it's really been an awesome process. And I'm excited that our listeners will get a chance to know more about Vilda as a result of this particular episode. So that's awesome. So, hey everyone, we'll be right back with more questions for Emma Rapun. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. 
Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at unrulr.com. Mahalo. Hey everyone, we are back with Emma Rapoon, who studied sociology and much more at UC Santa Barbara and who got her graduate degree in teaching from the Bay Area Teacher Training Institute, otherwise known as BADI. So Emma, in this last section, we're gonna come back to some questions about you. You shared with me a list of books that have been influential on in your life as an educator, including The Whole Brain Child, Hunter, Gather, Parent, and There's No Such Thing as Bad Weather, A Scandinavian Mom's Secrets for Raising Healthy, Resilient, and Confident Kids. So I want to focus for a minute on the No Bad Weather book. So perhaps the core question that drives this book forward is, could the Scandinavian philosophy of there is no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothes, I love that, be the key to better lives for American children? So what is your response? And actually, I think I want to focus that response a little bit. In what ways did the recent storms, just even a couple of weeks ago or a week ago, that hit Northern California, how did you and your kiddos respond? And in what ways does your response illustrate your connection to the no bad weather concept? Like, what did you and your kiddos do as the rains pounded Northern California? And by all rights, you could have all stayed home, you know, for a week away from school, quote unquote. Yeah, so we did not stay home. <laughs> no, and you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> we did not stay home. And you might be recalling my texts about yeah. the survival simulation, mm. you know, in, in many mm. ways it was quite funny to me because here we are, you know, one of our taglines is wilderness skills and survival skills. But most of the time, it doesn't feel like we're in that situation. In this case, it did feel a bit more like that. Of course, it was safe and you know, assessed by all the powers that be. And we were fine to be out there, but it was definitely edgy. Yeah. And more of that direct experience, real life, like, wow, how do we actually stay warm right now? <laughs> yeah. How do we actually get through the next six hours, the next six hours and come out the other side smiling? How do we come out the other side? Well, how do we thrive in this situation? It's a great question. I love that you're focusing on this because it was so recent and so real. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that book really nails it in that there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothes, or I like to say bad year. Mm. And this is something that we focus on a lot, particularly in my zone of early childhood. The five basic needs that I'm tracking and my co-teachers are tracking all the time for the children we work with. And that's gear, body temperature, food intake, water intake, and bathroom needs. Mm. And so, you know, if you multiply five by however many kids we have in our group at a time, you know, in any given moment, we can have a lot of needs going on because at that age, often we can't track all of those things for ourselves. So we need a lot of support. And that's a lot of our basic core curriculum is how do we take care of ourselves? How do we do self-care mm. in the elements outside and 
allow that to be our baseline of how we then have all these magical adventures and all this so and more than just you know gear or sort of objective self-care it really roots down into how do we tend to ourselves right the village how do we all take care of each other Mm. out here in this wide wild world and how do we thrive in this environment and i love the way that that book illuminates this mom's experience coming from the Scandinavian countries, moving to a small town Midwest and her experience of everybody in that place seemingly going from one temperature controlled environment to another, from home to the car, to the store, from home to the car, to school for children in particular, and how that really diminishes our natural resilience, our natural grit, our natural readiness to get out and have an adventure and be in our bodies. And her reflections were really powerful mm. to read because they, they're absolutely what I experience. And it's amazing, you know, again, without ever calling anyone out, it's amazing here in California, at least how much of a journey that is for families and for kids to get comfortable with all that gear. Whereas in Scandinavian countries, those four-year-olds are taking naps <laughs> with blankets in the tub. <laughs> right. So here we are in Northern California. Yes, these last months have been pretty wild for us. We're so blessed to have all this rain and really amazing experience for me to be out there. And all these years of teaching, I don't think teaching outside, I don't think I've actually experienced something quite like that. It's been a while since we had a winter where I was out with kids like that. And it was really beautiful to watch all of that learning and studying that I've done come into action in that moment and for us to orient around those five basic needs And to watch how that really genuinely impacts those kids on a level I believe they then take into the rest of their life. So it's not simply about, oh yeah, I wore the right gear. I took care of my body. I see those kids actually grow in leaps and bounds in those weeks that we're together. And I really imagine and foresee that those qualities and skills that they're picking up, being outside, being with me, being in these programs is positively impacting the rest of their life as a human. Mm. And what happened in that process for me, Em, is that it raised so many memories for me of these massive storm moments when I was growing up. And for me and my six brothers, probably to a lesser degree, my sister, who was a little more genteel than the rest of us, that we saw those moments as tremendous moments of opportunity. You know, when the waters were pouring down the mountainside behind our house and racing down the driveway. For for us, that was a moment of discovery and wonder. You know, out came the, you know, the makeshift life raft that we would just roar down the driveway in the flood, right? But those were all tremendous learning moments. And I think what I gained from some of the photos that you sent to me of those moments is that you really tapped into that with, with your kids, right? I mean, it, you really did make it a moment of wonder and discovery, not just of hunkering down and trying to make it through, right? Absolutely. We were building fires. We were roasting (laughs) apples. We were going on lots of uphill adventures to get our temperature up. We were, Mm. yeah, we were really coming together in that village model. We spent a lot of time around fire. We learned a ton about how to build fires. I mean, seriously, think of these four (laughs) or five and six-year-olds who are confidently building the fire for the day. Yeah. And I feel so proud of that. And I feel so excited for that realness, you know, in this world where so much has become kind of synthetic and unreal and virtual reality, just like this altered experience that we're having as human beings. I have the opportunity to 
be around a fire with young children, which is such a real primal element as we are joyfully surviving with our tarp shelter that we figured out how to jimmy rig (laughs) (laughs) and our, you know, our hot tea. We had so much tea, you know, all the things, those like really real primal elements of the earth that are, that are, you know, infallibly real. Yeah. Such a gift. It's such a gift. Yeah. That's awesome. So, Em, two more questions before we close up this awesome conversation. I recently read a book titled The Good Ancestor by Roman Krasnarek. And in it, the author describes a series of, quote, good ancestor questions and prompts that lead to deep conversations. And and I'll say to our listeners, this book absolutely changed the axis of my world in 2022. It's, It's been a tremendously influential work, which will guide me in the years ahead. So there are six of these prompts or questions, and they are huge, and they live at the 30,000-foot level, and you selected one of them to respond to today. So here's that prompt, that question. What legacy do you want to leave for your family, your community, and for the living world, Emma Rapoon? I love this question. I love all your questions, but I really... (laughs) I really love this question and I'm so grateful for the opportunity to think about it and to answer it. And I chose the legacy question. It was hard to choose because yeah, those prompts are incredible. incredible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it really, it felt so right. This question, like this is really what my life's mission is about right now is leaving a legacy for future generations that is as healed and as whole and as vibrant as possible. Mm. In the last few years, I've gotten more interested in my own personal ancestry. Mm. And it's been a really exciting journey. It was one of those things as a kid, you know, kind of a perfect example of the way we've gotten away from the village. I'm like, ah, 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 not that interested. You know, people want to tell me stories. A grandparent wants to, you know, talk all about this time from way back when it didn't really land with me. But in the last few years, I've really come into that curiosity authentically and innately in myself. And Mm -hmm. so as I've been exploring it, it's really brought up for me, what are my offspring and offspring of my offspring, the people who come before me, Mm -hmm. who come from me, what will they think of me? Mm -hmm. What will they know about me? As I ponder and wonder about my own ancestors and Mm -hmm. feel so much deep curiosity and long, just absolutely long to sit at their knee and ask them all my questions, it makes me wonder what will the people who come after me think? And so I feel really committed to and devoted to leaving a legacy of healing, of inner journeying, of transformation, of breaking the mold and embracing wholeness and embracing the wholeness of what it means to be a human being and to be healthy and well and vibrantly alive in a really truthful, authentic, free place. I want my future generations to look back and, you know, think Grandma Emma was so wild and so wonderful and so honest and so free and in the most grounded, heartful way possible that I would be a turning point 
in my legacy, if you will, trauma cycle breaker, a person who really embraced the light and the shadow of what it was to come into this world and what it is to be me and alchemized my life journey into a really wholesome, loving, heart-centered. A person who cared deeply about relationship building, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly (laughs) that. Exactly that. I want to be that Grandma Emma. I'm striving to be her Mm. every day. I'm striving to be that good ancestor. I Mm. love that question. Thank you. You're well on your way. So as you know, Emma, at the end of conversations, I love to give my guests the opportunity to shout out to someone upon whose shoulders they stand, that person who mentored, coached, guided, sponsored, and lifted you up, if you will. Who is this special person, this giant upon whose shoulders you stand? Well, you know, it may seem like the obvious choice, but I have to say it's you. Oh. And there's many, many incredible humans that I owe so much gratitude to, but I have to say with all my heart and truly, truly authentically, as I thought about this question, knowing I was going to get to answer it, I'm so Mm. deeply grateful and humbled by your support over the years, by your incredible listening and guidance and counseling as my journey has unfolded. Always you're there. You're Mm. there. And in this journey in particular, everything we're speaking to, you've been so available and so devoted and so committed to me in a way that I am just profoundly changed by and so deeply impacted by. And it's not something everybody gets. I think it's kind of rare. Mm. And so I know it's sort of funny because you're the podcast host (laughs) and you're the one interviewing me, but I I just have to say, I'm so thankful for you, Pop. And I'm Mm -hmm. so excited for my journey to keep unfolding and to get to share it with you and to laugh and to wonder and to counsel and to tease things out and to talk and to grow and to learn together. Mm. And I'm so glad to be that apple that hasn't fallen far from your tree. And I think that I would add to that lovely thought, Em, that if there's one thing, and I asked you earlier to pinpoint one thing in that list of skills that you listed on your resume, if there's one thing that you have taught me and guided me towards and coached me towards and sponsored me as I moved forward with my life. If there's one thing, one truly great gift that you have given to me, it's the elevation of gratitude into one's life. And I think for me, having prepared for this conversation and now having listened to this conversation with you, that gratitude is woven through every part of you. And that's very inspiring to me. And it's really neat to be able to share this with you at the end of this conversation. So Emma Rapoon, thank you so much for being on the What School Could Be podcast. I wish you and your kiddos and your extended family and your greater village there in Northern California, a fantastic rest of the winter and the emergence into spring. And I look forward to getting this episode out to our listeners so they can know us together. Thanks, Pop. I love you. I love you too. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. Our theme music comes from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist, 
Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. The series is underwritten by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Also, follow the show on Twitter at WSCB Podcast. Listeners, the most important thing you can do in these uncertain times is to bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take care.